Well, they haven't shut the doors yet, so. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll have time for coffee and fellowship afterwards. Well, let's uh, let's begin. Let's let's begin with some prayer. Father, you are good, and we give you all the praise. Thank you for today. It is your day. It is the one you have made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. Give us the focus to handle and to learn your word rightly and diligently. Help us rightly apply it and help us to transform our lives more and more into the image of your Son. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the life, the death, and the resurrection of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have to begin and uh, tell you that I have uh, been overwhelmed. I've been blessed by all the wonderful feedback and the things that I've heard uh, being spread throughout the church uh, of you, one another. The things that you've been saying about each other have been uh, wonderful. And not just uh, that day, but it spread throughout the whole week. Um, And I was greatly encouraged. I can say rightly with Paul that you all bring me joy. I'm thankful for you all. Uh, You encourage me, and you show me more and more what the gospel truly looks like. And I do say that with all sincerity. Well, last week we were going through Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And we were were reminded of the fruit of righteousness that comes only through Christ. And we defined love, and we saw what that looked like, but it's... We also saw that it was paired with full knowledge and all discernment and what that looks like played out as well. Well, if you'll turn uh, with me to the next section, we'll be in, uh, this week we'll be in 12 through 20, verses 12 through 20 in the first chapter. And Paul is letting them know, letting the Philippians know that he's doing okay. In fact, he's, he's doing more than okay. Because he can directly see God's hand, directly see God's uh, work at hand. So let's read the text. Philippians 1, 12 through 20 says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Remember the apologia from last week. The former proclaim it out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. 
And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now that is uh, a whole lot of Scripture there. And so, again, I say we're only going to merely scratch the surface. We're going to try to keep it uh, applicable to, to us and what we can pull from it. So I've broken down uh, this, this chunk into manageable size chunks. Verses 12 through 14 this is, I've, I've called this for the greater progress, verses 12 through 14. They say, now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that in my chains in Christ, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So beginning in verse 12, some of the knowledge that we talked about last week, that we spoke about, Paul spoke on earlier, some of this full knowledge, um, it's a small part of the full counsel of God. Paul says, I want you to know. I want you to know. Well, what does he want us to know? We've got to ask those questions. Each text, each scripture is uh, informing us. God is informing us of a specific doctrine, maybe more than one, but there's always one that protrudes to the top, that elevates to the top. You could argue that uh, what Paul is going through is for his sanctification. That's certainly true. Uh, everything that Paul is going through is to make him more like Christ. That's a guarantee. But if we look at Paul's pastoral heart here and him trying to comfort the Philippians, Paul's sanctification is probably not, first and foremost, the doctrine that we're to see here, even though it is certainly true. But if we look at, uh, and some surely speculate, you can speculate, uh, maybe some are gossiping as to what has and maybe what will and as to why Paul is going through what he's going through. Because remember, we've got Nero in power. There will be more on Nero in just a bit. If you're not familiar with the madman, most of Paul's books were written with Nero in power. And maybe with a little bit of backdrop of who he was and uh, some of the things he's known for. Certain phrases in Paul's writings, might, it might help just a bit for us to understand, get a little bit about, about that knowledge. So, so then the unknown realities of what Paul is and will endure may bring some fear amongst the Philippians. So Paul's goal here is to get their minds right. Paul wants them, the Philippians, to be comforted. So he does that 
by addressing the underlying truth here in this scripture, which is the Mount Everest under it all is the sovereignty of God. We see that plainly in the text. We know that this is true because one, these are obviously the events that are, that are happening, that are taking place. That's obvious. But more importantly too, we, Paul wants us to know he wants us to be comforted by the circumstances that they have turned out for the progress of the gospel. That is always the end of God's sovereignty. And also for Christ's likeness. The greater progress, he says, the greater progress of the gospel. Let me define God's sovereignty or God's governance with Scripture. It's one of the easiest things to do. So we need to hang on because there's quite a few that I'm going to address and go through. You can write these down and hopefully they'll bring comfort to you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11. They say, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We heard last week uh, several times Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to His purpose. We see in Psalm 103, verse 19. 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens. And His kingdom rules over all. Daniel 4, chapter 4, 34 through 35. says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Matthew ten twenty nine through 31 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you're more va- uh, sorry. Are you, you are of more value than many sparrows. We can see that God's sovereignty here is directly used to comfort. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Two more. Two more. Proverbs sixteen thirty three say, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And the last one that we'll look at. Psalm 135 5 through 7. Say, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain, and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. And we know that all things are brought about here. The end of God's sovereign purpose is for His glory. We know that. But we're shown here in verse 12 
that it's for the greater purpose of the gospel. Always the case in God's sovereign orchestrating. If you, like me, if you ever struggle understanding about your less than stellar situation, you can say, turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 will be in verse 18 and following. So if you're ever wondering about your less than great circumstances, situation, you need to be able to say with Paul these words, but we with all, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, down to 4, verses 7 through 11. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. In every way afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. Sometimes we're blessed and we're given specifics in our circumstances, but most of the time not. But whatever is happening to a believer, two things are guaranteed. They are being transformed into the image of Christ, likeness, and also the furthering of the gospel. Because God is always in control. So can you say when you're stuck in a classroom, you're stuck with those secular kids or those secular people, or how about at your desk, you're staring at a screen, of endless reports? What about feeling stuck in a house all day, every day with the kids? You better believe it. It's always to further the gospel one way or another. I trust you already knew these things. It just sits as a helpful reminder to us. So in, in verse 13, if you look back in Philippians, verse 13 we see Paul's circumstances, specifically his chains here. They have led to the whole Praetorian Guard. These are personal bodyguards or intel agents, intel officers. These are some of the most elite Roman soldiers that there ever were. So that makes them some of the most elite soldiers that ever existed, right? They are hearing the gospel they are coming to faith. Paul, he's no more than 18 inches at any given time from at least one, if not more, of these guards. 24-7 at all times. This led to some of Caesar's household being saved. We see that in chapter 4, verses 22, as, he, uh, as they greet the Philippians. We see in verse 14, most of the brothers, their confidence is growing their courage is growing to do what? What are they doing? They're, they're speaking the Word of God. And we know that this is only, again, this is only because of God's sovereignty. Because sharing 
the word at this time came with a high price. No one of their own choice, no one of their own free will, if you will, would choose to openly talk of Yahweh, the monotheistic God of the Scriptures. Not in Nero's reign, especially not towards the end. A little bit about Nero from 54 to 68. He was a man known for the murder of his mother. He murdered his pregnant wife. He found a young boy that looked like her. And he did a few things to him. I'll spare you the details. And he dressed him up to look like her and then he married the young boy. For entertainment, he would take Christians. He would chain them to a post in the Colosseum. Then he would dress himself up as a wild beast. And he would brutally attack them in specific ways. And again, I'll spare you the details if you don't already know. Before they were murdered. So maybe now we can understand a little bit more, just a, just a, a glimpse more of why this growing in confidence for believers might be such a big deal. And God's hand through it all, every bit of it, for the greater progress of the gospel again. More and more sinners being saved. Sinners looking more like Christ. And the glory belonging to God, obviously. And we see in uh, 12 through 14, Paul's trying to give a right perspective. They had a good idea, everyone involved had a good idea of the real possibility of what Paul might, what his end might be. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, with, with, in a worldly sense, it, it doesn't look good. But Paul has his mind on, and he's reminding the Philippians, he's telling them, advance the gospel, advance the kingdom. Paul is blessed as he gets to see the fruit firsthand not a few it says what it says what there it says most not just a few of the people but most of them they are what are they doing they're hearing they're seeing Paul's testimony and they're being saved and they're emboldened by it because of it do you know how useful a bold and, and encouraged Christian is just one let alone most as Paul describes. So are you able to take your difficulties, your trials from the past that you've gone through, or maybe a one of a, of a friend that you know of, and list them out? Maybe some right now. And are you able to, to, to see God's hand through it, the way He made you look more like Christ, the way that He furthered the gospel with those circumstances? Opening your eyes to see that, does that give you courage? I sure hope so. Well, moving on, verses 15 through 17, this next section, uh, it, it describes envy versus pure motives. Verses 15 through 17 say, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the, for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. 
if we speak the truth, if we stand firm on the truth, you will divide. Christ tells us, He goes so far as to say that the truth of Him, it will divide father and son. It will divide daughter and mother to include the in-laws. Do you think that I come to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. Those are Christ's words. And Paul's experiencing it. If Christ warned us, if it happened to Paul, it'll surely happen to you. If you're defending the truth, if you're standing firm on it, guys, the world hates truth, absolutely hates God and the Son to be included in that. Therefore, if you find yourself with critics, you're in good company. So the sum that is found in verse 15 is referring to the brothers previously mentioned in in verse 14. Paul and his circumstances are used as a motivation for both of these parties that we read about that are preaching Christ. Paul and his circumstances are both being used as motivation You have those that are preaching from envy and strife or rivalry and jealousy. They think that they're going to cause Paul some affliction out of this. Some more pain in his chains as to compound upon his terror. Over what? Why are they doing this? What's the purpose? What's the cause? Well, uh, a few speculate. You could speculate as some of the theologians. Steve Lawson, he says... This isn't a direct quote, but just I summed it up a little bit. But for Paul's, they're jealous because of Paul's reaching ministry. Maybe the influence or the impact that Paul had with his brothers. Maybe Paul's towering intellect that, we're, that we know about and his understanding. How about his purity? Paul's purity. His pure motives. And with, because of a lack of love, a lack of humility... Now they slander Paul whenever they can. But this selfish ambition that is paired with them in verse 17, it's more literally to be understood as for hire. These men are for hire. Essentially, who's the highest bidder? And their motives, the highest bid is to lift themselves. They're only preaching Christ to lift themselves. These men were all about selfish promotion, self-promotion, under the surface, which is why in verse 9, Paul calls for all discernment. When they, when they act out their love, when they practice love, it's to be full knowledge and all discernment, right? Because why? Because sometimes it's hard to see their true motives. Maybe they don't even know. Maybe they're deceiving themselves. Maybe they don't even know their truest intent. So we need discernment because their goal is to cause Paul affliction or pain as he's in prison. They're slandering his character. They're publicly shaming him. They're attacking his motives. They're gossiping. Hey, did you hear why Paul's in jail? He can't be in God's will. God's will. He's not in God's will. You can't be in jail. It was, it was very despised on in his day, much more than today, to, to have gone to jail, even though he's there for preaching the gospel. Well, the love of God 
and the envy of others cannot coexist in the same person at the same time. It simply can't. Envy, strife, pride, hatred, they're often used together as they are in stark contrast to the fruit of the Spirit or the characteristics of a believer. So some in verses 15 and 16, they are still loyal to Paul and still loyal to the truth. And it's them who understand that it is God who sovereignly appointed Paul for preaching the gospel. It is God, they understand that it is God who uh, placed him in that jail. And it's God who is causing all these things to happen to Paul. And Paul's just communicating that. He is simply paying the price for truth. Sometimes truth has a high price and, and Paul's just the, the placeholder for that. Uh, these two groups, they are diametrically opposed. Pure motives, goodwill, the love of Christ. The love of Christ is what is controlling. That's the controlling force behind them. Rather than worrying about the trials to come and go, they're bold and they're still preaching Christ. Because they understand that it's God's handiwork. It's His sovereignty. It's His governance. And that should be comforting to us. Does it motivate? Does that encourage you? As we dig into the last section, verses uh, 18 through 20, this is the true outcome. The true outcome. Verses 18 through 20. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That's the true outcome. Verse 18, Paul's not saying here that motives don't matter. That's not what he's saying. That would contradict the rest of Philippians. That would contradict Ephesians, Galatians, and just a few other books that we know about in the Scriptures. God cares much about our motives. God cares about our heart. So much so that Christ came and died to change our stony heart, to change our motives. But Paul is causing them to bring to mind all of them, as we read earlier, all of them, or sorry, last week, to bring to mind these memories of them. Reminding that right now in this moment, it's bringing them such joy. It's bringing him such joy. And also, it's bringing him joy of the, of the, the, the work, the gospel work that he's doing in this very moment. And that this should bring them joy as well. And not be wrapped up in the gospel. To remember their job is to love and to encourage with full knowledge and all discernment. And to remember who is in control. Has God ever used false motives to speak his truth before? Well, I seem to remember, I don't know about you, but uh, maybe a certain bush to speak his truth, right? Maybe... Uh, the potentiality of some rocks to cry out. And endless fallen men and women, 
I can assure you there, there were some false motives at some point in time, many of them. When and how he decides to get his truth out, it'll happen. Just ask Job or Jonah. Well, we see in verse 18 in the greater context, Paul is trying to divert the eyes of the Philippians off of himself, letting, letting them know how thankful he is, how full of joy, how full of thankfulness that he is doing God's will. Now let's work on getting your minds right, Philippians. He doesn't want to defend himself, but simply the truth. In other words, hey guys, the gospel is being spread regardless. The gospel is being spread regardless. I'm glad in this. I'm rejoicing in this. I'm thriving here, guys. Paul isn't concerned about being torn down by those which he loves. Don't confuse that. He still loves these people. If the cause of Christ is being served, guys, that the, the Christ is being cro- proclaimed, period. I've been a footstool before. Have you not read my testimony? Do you not know me? I don't care. His focus is off of himself and on to shepherding the Philippians in the same. What a, what a pure testimony. Then in verse 19, when it says no, it is a term of certainty. So Paul is certain that this will turn out for my salvation or deliverance, depending on what uh, translation you have. Paul's quoting directly from Job thirteen sixteen, which both Paul and Job, as we know, they understand what it is to be wrongly slandered, Right? And but yet still focusing on all things working together for good. So what is this, when Paul says salvation or deliverance, what is this? What is this that he's talking about? Well, it's certainly not salvation referring to Paul's uh, faith in Christ, the application of the blood of Christ, nor is it indicating that he's asking to be delivered or rescued or saved from his prison circumstances as we know in verse 20 he says by life or by death he doesn't know which is better as Marshall will uh, contemplate later uh, next week but Paul's contemplating these uh, two options pretty depthly in uh, verses 21 and following and then we also know that it's it can't be those things because He says in chapter 4 that he's content in all things. But either way, Paul's theology is deeply rooted in God's sovereignty again. And we know he'll get out of prison one way or the other. Whether it's by death, by execution, or it's by being released. Both of these are to be counted as deliverance. And this salvation will come through as it continues on. It will come through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we know that James 5.16, when it refers to prayers, it will come through, the, through your prayer. James 5.16 tells us that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, Paul knows much better than we do about that. So that's why it will come through prayer. 
and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is working in Paul's life, the same Spirit that's working in the Philippians' life, that exact same Spirit that's here at PBC in us. It's providing or provision. It's describing full, bountiful, and sufficient supply of whatever is needed. He is the sufficient provider of all things we need for a believer. And Paul's confidence is rooted deep in there. And we have every reason toward the same. Continue on in uh, verse 20. We'll read, this is our choice. Verse 20, it says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Verses 12 through 19, we see that God's will brings him through here, brings him to where he's at. Verses 19, the believer's prayer is sustaining him, helping him on the way. And verse 20 is now Paul's choice. It's his choice. When a believer in boldness trusts in the truth, he stands firm on it, the truth of Christ, the perfect substitute that knew no sin, bore the wrath of believers. So instead of crimson stain, we now wear his perfect righteousness. When that is our banner that we wear, there is no feelings to be hurt. There is no shame or dishonor. It doesn't exist. They're not even in the equation. Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified. You can't hurt a dead man and they certainly don't have feelings. So verse 20, it says, with all boldness. He says with John the Baptist in John 3.30, this is a summation of it. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. As Christ is magnified, exalted, enlarged, Christ shows through Paul's being. He's showing through Paul's body and his scars. It is our choice daily to please God, to live for a life that is consistent with the Scriptures, the Scriptures being our measuring rod. As, as we know, and Marshall reminded me last night, a, a good reminder that Scripture, the chapter breaks and the, and the verses, they're not inspired. So this is not how the church would have read it in small chunks, although it is quite helpful for us as well. But we must read it in bigger sections. So, or we, they, we must understand it in, bigger, in the bigger sections. So we must allow theology to drive our choices, to drive your lifestyle. The truths of God that we know because they're here for us, they must drive our thoughts, our ideas. They must dominate them. And it starts in the mind, as we know in verse 9. It starts in the mind. And then it shows through in our lives, in our bodies, verse 20. How we live, what we choose to do and what we choose not to do. It's our choice to please the Lord. And we must make those every day. And here Paul's keeping the main thing, the main thing. Less of me, more of Christ. Because we serve a good God. 
I'll save the last phrase for Marshall next week. I won't get into it because it's, it's, it's a lot there. I hope you're all excited for Marshall next week, as I'm sure he is to bring you the truth. So in conclusion, is it your prayer to live out a testimony? That Christ, do you, do you actively think about this? To manifest a, in your life Christ, in your body, with specifics in mind. Not just in a general vague term, I want to be more like Christ. Well, that's great, but let's get down to it. Application. So going from here, when you get home or, or on your lunch, feel free to, to do this. Write out some of your trials from the past. This might be helpful. Journal through them. I do it with my right hand, even though I'm left-handed. Journal through them and see if you can't see how God's hand has comforted you through it. How you don't look, uh, and, and how much more like Christ you look from 10 years ago. Because remember, guys, as a Christian, the Christian life, it's a journey. It's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. See how blessed you are and how our loving, our all-powerful, our Holy Father is holding you and comforting you out of all of your and my foolishness. He still loves us with the same exact love that He has for His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, You are good. You are faithful in, in all things and to what You say, what You've told us in Your Word. Thank you for today. Thank you for the encouragement and the truth found in your word. Help us to hold it close and to obey it throughout the week, day by day. Thank you that you have made a way for us for our right relationship with you through your son. Thank you for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and those truths, those realities. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.